Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne Chapter 12 Black Rock Creek Human nature is prone to illusions. Of course there had been all along a probability that the terror had deserted the locality, even admitting that it was she Wells had seen the previous day. If some damage to her triple system of locomotion had prevented her from regaining either by land or by water her usual hiding-place, and obliged her to seek refuge in Black Rock Creek, what ought we to conclude now upon finding her here no longer? Obviously, that having finished her repairs, she had continued on her way and was already far beyond the waters of Lake Erie. But probable as this result had been from the first, we had more and more ignored it as our trip proceeded. We had come to accept as a fact that we should meet the terror, that we should find her anchored at the base of the rocks where Wells had seen her. And now, what disappointment! I might even say, what despair! All our efforts gone for nothing! Even if the terror was still upon the lake, to find her, reach her, and capture her was beyond our power, and it might as well be fully recognized beyond all human power. We stood there, Wells and I, completely crushed, while John Hart and Nab Walker, no less chagrined, went tramping along the banks of the creek, seeking any trace that had been left behind. Posted there, at the mouth of the creek, Wells and I exchanged scarcely a word. What need was there of words to enable us to understand each other? After our eagerness and our despair, we were now exhausted. Defeated in our well-planned attempt, we felt as unwilling to abandon our campaign as we were unable to continue it. Nearly an hour slipped by. We could not resolve to leave the place. Our eyes still sought to pierce the night. Sometimes a glimmer, due to the sparkle of the waters, trembled on the surface of the lake. Then it vanished, and with it the foolish hope that it had roused. Sometimes again we thought we saw a shadow outlined against the dark, the silhouette of an approaching boat. Yet again some eddies would swirl up at our feet as if the creek had been stirred within its depths. These vain imaginings were dissipated one after the other. They were but the illusions raised by our strained fancies. At length our companions rejoined us. My first question was, Nothing new? Nothing said John Hart. "'You have explored both banks of the creek?' "'Yes,' responded Nab Walker, "'as far as the shallow water above, and we have not seen even a vestige of the things which Mr. Wells saw laid on the shore.' "'Let us wait a while,' said I, unable to resolve upon a return to the woods. At that moment our attention was caught by a sudden agitation of the waters, which swelled upward at the foot of the rocks. "'It is like the swell from a vessel,' said Wells. "'Yes,' said I, instinctively lowering my voice. "'What has caused it? The wind has completely died out. Does it come from something on the surface of the lake?' "'Or from something underneath,' said Wells, bending forward, the better to determine. The commotion certainly seemed as if caused by some boat, whether from beneath the water, or approaching the creek from outside upon the lake. Silent, motionless, we strained eyes and ears to pierce the profound obscurity. The faint noise of the waves of the lake lapping on the shore beyond the creek came to us distinctly through the night. John Hart and Nab Walker drew a little aside upon a higher ridge of rocks. 
As for me, I leaned close to the water to watch the agitation. It did not lessen. On the contrary, it became momentarily more evident, and I began to distinguish a sort of regular throbbing, like that produced by a screw in motion. "'There is no doubt,' declared Wells, leaning close to me. "'There is a boat coming toward us.' "'There certainly is,' responded I, "'unless they have whales or sharks in Lake Erie.' "'No, it is a boat,' repeated Wells. "'Is she headed toward the mouth of the creek, or is she going further up it?' "'This is just where you saw the boat twice before?' "'Yes, just here.' Then if this is the same one, and it can be no other, she will probably return to the same spot. There, whispered Wells, extending his hand toward the entrance of the creek. Our companions rejoined us, and all four, crouching low upon the bank, peered in the direction he pointed. We vaguely distinguished a black mass moving through the darkness. It advanced very slowly, and was still outside the creek, upon the lake perhaps a cable's length to the northeast. We could scarcely hear even now the faint throbbing of its engines. Perhaps they had stopped, and the boat was only gliding forward under their previous impulse. It seemed then that this was indeed the submarine which Wells had watched, and it was returning to pass this night, like the last, within the shelter of the creek. Why had it left the anchorage, if only to return? Had it suffered some new disaster, which again impaired its power? Or had it been before compelled to leave, with its repairs still unfinished? What cause constrained it to return here? Was there some imperious reason why it could no longer be turned into an automobile and go darting away across the roads of Ohio? To all these questions which came crowding upon me I could give no answer. Furthermore, both Wells and I kept reasoning under the assumption that this was really the terror commanded by the Master of the World, who had dated from it his letter of defiance to the government. Yet this premise was still unproven, no matter how confident we might feel of it. Whatever boat this was, that stole so softly through the night, it continued to approach us. Assuredly its captain must know perfectly the channels and shores of Black Rock Creek, since he ventured here in such darkness. Not a light showed upon the deck. Not a single ray from within the cabin glimmered through any crevice. A moment later we heard some machinery moving very softly. The swell of the eddies grew stronger, and in a few moments the boat touched the key. This word, key, only used in that region, exactly describes the spot. The rocks at our feet formed a level, five or six feet above the water, and descending to it perpendicularly, exactly like a landing wharf. "'We must not stop here,' whispered Wells, seizing me by the arm. "'No,' I answered. "'They might see us. We must lie crouched upon the beach. Or we might hide in some crevice of the rocks.' "'We will follow you.' There was not a moment to lose. The dark mass was now close at hand, and on its deck, but slightly raised above the surface of the water, we could trace the silhouettes of two men. Were there, then, really only two on board? We stole softly back to where the ravines rose toward the woods above. Several niches in the rocks were at hand. Wells and I crouched down in one, my two assistants in another. If the men on the terror landed, they could not see us, but we could see them, and would be able to act as opportunity offered. There were some slight noises from the boat, a few words exchanged in our own language. It was evident that the vessel was preparing to anchor. Then, almost instantly, a rope was thrown out, exactly on the point of the quay where we had stood. Leaning forward, Wells could discern that the rope was seized by one of the mariners, who had leaped ashore. Then we heard a grappling-iron scrape along the ground. Some moments later steps crunched upon the sand. Two men came up the ravine, and went onward toward the edge of the woods, guiding their steps by a ship-lantern. Where were they going? Was Black Rock Creek a regular hiding-place of the terror? Had her commander a depot here for stores or provisions? Did they come here to restock their craft? 
when the whim of their wild voyaging brought them to this part of the continent? Did they know this deserted, uninhabited spot so well that they had no fear of ever being discovered here? "'What shall we do?' whispered Wells. "'Wait till they return, and then—' My words were cut short by a surprise. The men were not thirty feet from us when, one of them chancing to turn suddenly, the light of their lantern fell full upon his face. He was one of the two men who had watched before my house in Long Street. I could not be mistaken. I recognized him as positively as my old servant had done. It was he. It was assuredly one of the spies of whom I had never been able to find any further traces. There was no longer any doubt. My warning letter had come from them. It was therefore from the Master of the World. It had been written from the Terror, and this was the Terror. Once more I asked myself what could be the connection between this machine and the Great Eyrie. In whispered words I told Wells of my discovery. His only comment was, "'It is all incomprehensible.' Meanwhile the two men had continued on their way to the woods, and were gathering sticks beneath the trees. "'What if they discover our encampment?' murmured Wells. "'No danger, if they do not go beyond the nearest trees.' "'But if they do discover it, they will hurry back to their boat, and we shall be able to cut off their retreat.' Toward the creek, where their craft lay, there was no further sound. I left my hiding-place. I descended the ravine to the quay. I stood on the very spot where the grappling-iron was fast among the rocks. The terror lay there, quiet, at the end of its cable. Not a light was on board, not a person visible, either on the deck or on the bank. Was not this my opportunity? Should I leap on board and there await the return of the two men? Mr. Strock! It was Wells who called to me softly from close at hand. I drew back in all haste, and crouched down beside him. Was it too late to take possession of the boat, or would the attempt perhaps result in disaster from the presence of others watching on board? At any rate the two men with a lantern were close at hand returning down the ravine. Plainly they suspected nothing. Each carrying a bundle of wood, they came forward and stopped upon the quay. Then one of them raised his voice, though not loudly. "'Hello, Captain!' "'All right,' answered a voice from the boat. Wells murmured in my ear, "'There are three. "'Perhaps four, I answered. "'Perhaps five or six. The situation grew more complicated. Against a crew so numerous, what ought we to do? The least imprudence might cost us dear.' Now that the two men had returned, would they re-embark with their faggots? Then would the boat leave the creek, or would it remain anchored until day? If it withdrew, would it not be lost to us? It could leave the waters of Lake Erie and cross any of the neighboring states by land, or it could retrace its road by the Detroit River which would lead it to Lake Huron and the Great Lakes above. Would such an opportunity as this, in the narrow waters of Black Rock Creek, ever occur again? At least, said I to Wells, we are four. They do not expect attacked. They will be surprised. The result is in the hands of Providence. I was about to call our two men, when Wells again seized my arm. Listen, said he. One of the men hailed the boat, and it drew close up to the rocks. We heard the captain say to the two men ashore, Everything is all right, up there? Everything, Cap'n. There are still two bundles of wood left there? Two. Then one more trip will bring them all on board the Terror. The Terror! It was she! Yes, just one more trip, answered one of the men. Good. Then we will start off again at daybreak. Were there then but three of them on board? The Captain, this master of the world, and these two men? Evidently they planned to take aboard the last of their wood. Then they would withdraw within their machine and go to sleep. Would not that be the time to surprise them, before they could defend themselves? Rather than to attempt to reach and capture the ship in face of this resolute captain who was guarding it, 
Wells and I agreed that it was better to let his men return unassailed, and wait till they were all asleep. It was now half an hour after ten. Steps were once more heard upon the shore. The man with a lantern and his companion again remounted the ravine toward the woods. When they were safely beyond hearing, Wells went to warn our men, while I stole forward again to the very edge of the water. The terror lay at the end of a short cable. As well as I could judge she was long and slim, shaped like a spindle, without chimney, without masts, without rigging, such a shape as had been described when she was seen on the coast of New England. I returned to my place, with my men in the shelter of the ravine, and we looked to our revolvers, which might well prove of service. Five minutes had passed since the men reached the woods, and we expected their return at any moment. After that we must wait at least an hour before we made our attack, so that both the captain and his comrades might be deep in sleep. It was important that they should not have a moment either to send their craft darting out upon the waters of Lake Erie, or to plunge it beneath the waves where we would have been entrapped with it. In all my career I have never felt such impatience. It seemed to me that the two men must have been detained in the woods. Something had barred their return. Suddenly a loud noise was heard, the tumult of runaway horses galloping furiously along the shore. They were our own, which, frightened, and perhaps neglected by the driver, had broken away from the clearing and now came rushing along the bank. At the same moment the two men reappeared, and this time they were running with all speed. Doubtless they had discovered our encampment, and had at once suspected that there were police hidden in the woods. They realized that they were watched, they were followed, they would be seized. So they dashed recklessly down the ravine, and after loosening the cable, they would doubtless endeavor to leap aboard. The terror would disappear with the speed of a meteor, and our attempt would be wholly defeated. "'Forward!' I cried, and we scrambled down the sides of the ravine to cut off the retreat of the two men. They saw us, and on the instant, throwing down their bundles, fired at us with revolvers, hitting John Hart in the leg. We fired in our turn, but less successfully. The men neither fell nor faltered in their course. Reaching the edge of the creek, without stopping to unloose the cable, they plunged overboard, and in a moment were clinging to the deck of the terror. Their captain, springing forward, revolver in hand, fired. The ball grazed Wells. Nab Walker and I, seizing the cable, pulled the black mass of the boat toward shore. Could they cut the rope in time to escape us? Suddenly the grappling iron was torn violently from the rocks. One of its hooks caught in my belt, while Walker was knocked down by the flying cable. I was entangled by the iron and the rope and dragged forward. The terror, driven by all the power of her engines, made a single bound and darted out across Black Rock Creek. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MASTER OF THE WORLD By Jules Verne Chapter 13 On Board the Terror When I came to my senses it was daylight. A half-light pierced the thick glass porthole of the narrow cabin wherein someone had placed me, how many hours ago I could not say. Yet it seemed to me by the slanting rays that the sun could not be very far above the horizon. I was resting in a narrow bunk with coverings over me. My clothes, hanging in a corner, had been dried. My belt, torn in half by the hook of the iron, lay on the floor. I felt no wound nor injury only a little weakness. If I had lost consciousness, I was sure it had not been from a blow. My head must have been drawn beneath the water when I was tangled in the cable. I should have been suffocated if someone had not dragged me from the lake. Now, was I on board the terror? And was I alone with the captain and his two men? This seemed probable, almost certain. 
The whole scene of our encounter rose before my eyes, Hart lying wounded upon the bank, Wells firing shot after shot, Walker hurled down at the instant when the grappling hook caught my belt, and my companions. On their side, must not they think that I had perished in the waters of Lake Erie? Where was the terror now, and how was it navigating? Was it moving as an automobile? Speeding across the roads of some neighboring state? If so, and if I had been unconscious for many hours, the machine with its tremendous powers must be already far away. Or, on the other hand, were we, as a submarine, following some course beneath the lake? No, the terror was moving upon some broad liquid surface. The sunlight, penetrating my cabin, showed that the window was not submerged. On the other hand, I felt none of the jolting that the automobile must have suffered even on the smoothest highway. Hence the terror was not travelling upon land. As to deciding whether she was still traversing Lake Erie, that was another matter. Had not the captain reascended the Detroit River and entered Lake Huron, or even Lake Superior, beyond? It was difficult to say. At any rate I decided to go up on deck. From there I might be able to judge. Dragging myself somewhat heavily from the bunk, I reached for my clothes and dressed, though without much energy. Was I not probably locked within this cabin? The only exit seemed by a ladder and hatchway above my head. The hatch rose readily to my hand, and I ascended halfway on deck. My first care was to look forward, backward, and on both sides of the speeding terror. Everywhere a vast expanse of waves, not a shore in sight, nothing but the horizon formed by sea and sky. Whether it was a lake or the ocean I could easily settle. As we shot forward at such speed the water cut by the bow rose furiously upward on either side, and the spray lashed savagely against me. I tasted it. It was fresh water, and very probably that of Lake Erie. The sun was but midway toward the zenith, so it could scarcely be more than seven or eight hours since the moment when the terror had darted from Black Rock Creek. This must therefore be the following morning, that of the thirty-first of July. Considering that Lake Erie is two hundred and twenty miles long, and over fifty wide, there was no reason to be surprised that I could see no land, neither that of the United States to the southeast, nor of Canada to the northwest. At this moment there were two men on the deck, one being at the bow on the lookout, the other in the stern keeping the course to the northeast, as I judged by the position of the sun. The one at the bow was the one whom I had recognized as he ascended the ravine at Black Rock. The second was his companion who had carried the lantern. I looked in vain for the one whom they had called Captain. He was not in sight. It will be readily appreciated how eager was my desire to stand in the presence of the creator of this prodigious machine, of this fantastic personage who occupied and preoccupied the attention of all the world the daring inventor who did not fear to engage in battle against the entire human race, and who proclaimed himself master of the world. I approached the man on the lookout, and after a minute of silence I asked him, Where is the captain? He looked at me through half-closed eyes. He seemed not to understand me. Yet I knew, having heard him the night before, that he spoke English. Moreover, I noticed that he did not appear surprised to see me out of my cabin. Turning his back upon me, he continued to search the horizon. I stepped then toward the stern, determined to ask the same question about the captain. But when I approached the steersman, he waved me away with his hand, and I obtained no other response. It only remained for me to study this craft, from which we had been repelled with revolver shots, when we had seized upon its anchor-rope. I therefore set leisurely to work to examine the construction of this machine, which was carrying me whither. The deck and the upper works were all made of some metal which I did not recognize. In the centre of the deck a scuttle half-raised covered the room where the engines were working regularly and almost silently. As I had seen before, neither masts nor rigging not even a flagstaff at the stern. 
Toward the bow there arose the top of a periscope, by which the terror could be guided when beneath the water. On the sides were folded back two sort of outshoots, resembling the gangways on certain Dutch boats. Of these I could not understand the use. In the bow there rose a third hatchway, which presumably covered the quarters occupied by the two men when the terror was at rest. At the stern a similar hatch gave access probably to the cabin of the captain, who remained unseen. When these different hatches were shut down, they had a sort of rubber covering which closed them hermetically tight, so that the water could not reach the interior when the boat plunged beneath the ocean. As to the motor, which imparted such prodigious speed to the machine, I could see nothing of it, nor of the propeller. However, the fast-speeding boat left behind it only a long, smooth wake. The extreme fineness of the lines of the craft caused it to make scarcely any waves, and enabled it to ride lightly over the crest of the billows even in a rough sea. As was already known, the power by which the machine was driven was neither steam nor gasoline, nor any of those similar liquids so well known by their odour, which are usually employed for automobiles and submarines. No doubt the power here used was electricity, generated on board at some high power. Naturally I asked myself whence comes this electricity, from piles or from accumulators? But how were these piles or accumulators charged? Unless indeed the electricity was drawn directly from the surrounding air or from the water, by processes hitherto unknown. And I asked myself with intense eagerness if in the present situation I might be able to discover these secrets. Then I thought of my companions, left behind on the shore of Black Rock Creek. One of them, I knew, was wounded. Perhaps the others were also. Having seen me dragged overboard by the hawser, could they possibly suppose that I had been rescued by the terror? Surely not. Doubtless the news of my death had already been telegraphed to Mr. Ward from Toledo. And now who would dare to undertake a new campaign against this master of the world? These thoughts occupied my mind as I awaited the captain's appearance on the deck. He did not appear. I soon began to feel very hungry, for I must have fasted now nearly twenty-four hours. I had eaten nothing since our hasty meal in the woods, even if that had been the night before, and judging by the pangs which now assailed my stomach, I began to wonder if I had not been snatched on board the terror two days before, or even more. Happily the question, if they meant to feed me, and how they meant to feed me, was solved at once. The man at the bow left his post, descended, and reappeared. Then, without saying a word, he placed some food before me, and returned to his place some potted meat, dried fish, sea-biscuit, and a pot of ale so strong that I had to mix it with water. Such was the meal to which I did full justice. My fellow-travellers had doubtless eaten before I came out of the cabin, and they did not join me. There was nothing further to attract my eyes, and I sank again into thought. How would this adventure finish? Would I see this invisible captain at length, and would he restore me to liberty? could I regain it in spite of him? That would depend on circumstances. But if the terror kept thus far away from the shore, or if she travelled beneath the water, how could I escape from her? Unless we landed, and the machine became an automobile, must I not abandon all hope of escape? Moreover, why should I not admit it? To escape without having learned anything of the terror's secrets would not have contented me at all. Although I could not thus far flatter myself upon the success of my campaign, and though I had come within a hair-breadth of losing my life, and though the future promised far more of evil than of good, yet after all a step forward had been attained. To be sure, if I was never to be able to re-enter into communication with the world, if, like this master of the world who had voluntarily placed himself outside the law, I was now placed outside humanity, then the fact that I had reached the terror would have little value. The craft continued headed to the northeast, following the longer axis of Lake Erie. She was advancing at only half-speed, 
for, had she been doing her best, she must some hours before have reached the northeastern extremity of the lake. At this end Lake Erie has no other outlet than the Niagara River, by which it empties into Lake Ontario. Now this river is barred by the famous cataract some fifteen miles beyond the important city of Buffalo. Since the terror had not retreated by the Detroit River, down which she had descended from the upper lakes, how was she to escape from these waters, unless indeed she crossed by land? The sun passed the meridian. The day was beautiful, warm but not unpleasantly so, thanks to the breeze made by our passage. The shores of the lake continued invisible on both the Canadian and the American side. Was the captain determined not to show himself? Had he some reason for remaining unknown? Such a precaution would indicate that he intended to set me at liberty in the evening, when the terror could approach the shore unseen. Toward two o'clock, however, I heard a slight noise. The central hatchway was raised. The man I had so impatiently awaited appeared on deck. I must admit he paid no more attention to me than his men had done. Going to the stern he took the helm. The man whom he had relieved, after a few words in a low tone, left the deck, descending by the forward hatchway. The captain, having scanned the horizon, consulted the compass and slightly altered our course. The speed of the terror increased. This man, so interesting both to me and to the world, must have been some years over fifty. He was of middle height, with powerful shoulders still very erect a strong head, with thick hair rather grey than white, smooth-shaven cheeks, and a short crisp beard. His chest was broad, his jaw prominent, and he had that characteristic sign of tremendous energy, bushy eyebrows drawn sharply together. Assuredly he possessed a constitution of iron, splendid health, and warm red blood beneath his sunburned skin. Like his companions, the captain was dressed in sea-clothes covered by an oilskin coat, and with a woolen cap which could be pulled down to cover his head entirely when he so desired. Need I add that the captain of the terror was the other of the two men, who had watched my house in Long Street? Moreover, if I recognized him, he also must recognize me as Chief Inspector Strzok, to whom had been assigned the task of penetrating the Great Erie. I looked at him curiously. On his part, while he did not seek to avoid my eyes, he showed at least a singular indifference to the fact that he had a stranger on board. As I watched him, the idea came to me, a suggestion which I had not connected with the first view of him in Washington, that I had already seen this characteristic figure. Was it in one of the photographs held in the police department? Or was it merely a picture in some shop window? but the remembrance was very vague. Perhaps I merely imagined it. Well, though his companions had not had the politeness to answer me, perhaps he would be more courteous. He spoke the same language as I, although I could not feel quite positive that he was of American birth. He might indeed have decided to pretend not to understand me, so as to avoid all discussion while he held me prisoner. In that case, what did he mean to do with me? Did he intend to dispose of me without further ceremony? Was he only waiting for night to throw me overboard? Did even the little which I knew of him make me a danger of which he must rid himself? But in that case he might better have left me at the end of his anchor-line. That would have saved him the necessity of drowning me over again. I turned. I walked to the stern. I stopped full in front of him. Then, at length, he fixed full upon me a glance that burned like a flame. "'Are you the captain?' I asked. He was silent. "'This boat, is it really the terror?' To this question also there was no response. Then I reached toward him. I would have taken hold of his arm. He repelled me without violence, but with a movement that suggested tremendous restrained power. Planting myself again before him, I demanded in a louder tone, "'What do you mean to do with me?' 
words seemed almost ready to burst from his lips, which he compressed with visible irritation. As though to check his speech he turned his head aside. His hand touched a regulator of some sort, and the machine rapidly increased its speed. Anger almost mastered me. I wanted to cry out, So be it! Keep your silence! I know who you are, just as I know your machine, recognized at Madison, at Boston, at Lake Kirdall. Yes, it is you, who have rushed so recklessly over our roads, our seas, and our lakes. Your boat is the terror, and you, her commander, wrote that letter to the government. It is you who fancy you can fight the entire world, you who call yourself the master of the world. And how could he have denied it? I saw at that moment the famous initials inscribed upon the helm. Fortunately, I restrained myself, and, despairing of getting any response to my questions, I returned to my seat near the hatchway of my cabin. For long hours I patiently watched the horizon in the hope that land would soon appear. Yes, I sat waiting, for I was reduced to that, waiting. No doubt, before the day closed, the terror must reach the end of Lake Erie, since she continued her course steadily to the northeast. End of chapter This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Master of the World by Jules Verne. Chapter 14 Niagara. The hours passed and the situation did not change. The steersman returned on deck, and the captain, descending, watched the movement of the engines. Even when our speed increased, these engines continued working without noise, and with remarkable smoothness. There was never one of those inevitable breaks with which in most motors the pistons sometimes miss a stroke. I concluded that the terror, in each of its transformations, must be worked by rotary engines but I could not assure myself of this. For the rest, our direction did not change. Always we headed toward the northeast end of the lake, and hence toward Buffalo. Why, I wondered, did the captain persist in following this route? He could not intend to stop at Buffalo, in the midst of a crowd of boats and shipping of every kind. If he meant to leave the lake by water, there was only the Niagara River to follow, and its falls would be impassable even to such a machine as this. The only escape was by the Detroit River, and the terror was constantly leaving that farther behind. Then another idea occurred to me. Perhaps the captain was only waiting for night to return to the shore of the lake. There the boat, changed to an automobile, would quickly cross the neighboring states. If I did not succeed in making my escape during this passage across the land, all hope of regaining my liberty would be gone. True, I might learn where this master of the world hid himself. I might learn what no one had yet been able to discover, assuming always that he did not dispose of me at one time or another. And what I expected his disposal would be is easily comprehended. I knew the northeast end of Lake Erie well, having often visited that section of New York State which extends westward from Albany to Buffalo. Three years before, a police mission had led me to explore carefully the shores of the Niagara River, both above and below the cataract and its suspension bridge. I had visited the two principal islands between Buffalo and the little city of Niagara Falls. I had explored Navy Island and also Goat Island, which separates the American Falls from those of the Canadian side. Thus, if an opportunity for flight presented itself, I should not find myself in an unknown district. But would this chance offer? And at heart did I desire it, or would I seize upon it? What secret still remained in this affair, in which good fortune, or was it evil fortune, had so closely entangled me? On the other hand, 
I saw no real reason to suppose that there was any chance of my reaching the shores of the Niagara River. The Terror would surely not venture into this trap which had no exit. Probably she would not even go to the extremity of the lake. Such were the thoughts that spun through my excited brain, while my eyes remained fixed upon the empty horizon. And always one persistent question remained insolvable. Why had the captain written to me, personally, that threatening letter? Why had he spied upon me in Washington? What bond attached him to the Great Erie? There might indeed be subterranean canals which gave him passage to Lake Kurdal, but could he pierce the impenetrable fortress of the Erie? No, that was beyond him. Toward four o'clock in the afternoon, reckoning by the speed of the terror and her direction, I knew we must be approaching Buffalo, and indeed its outlines began to show some fifteen miles ahead. During our passage a few boats had been seen, but we had passed them at a long distance, a distance which our captain could easily keep as great as he pleased. Moreover, the terror lay so low upon the water that at even a mile away it would have been difficult to discover her. Now, however, the hills encircling the end of Lake Erie came within vision, beyond Buffalo, forming the sort of funnel by which Lake Erie pours its waters into the channel of the Niagara River. Some dunes rose on the right, groups of trees stood out here and there. In the distance several freight steamers and fishing smacks appeared. The sky became spotted with trails of smoke, which were swept along by a light eastern breeze. What was our captain thinking of, in still heading toward the port of Buffalo? Did not prudence forbid him to venture further? At each moment I expected that he would give a sweep of the helm and turn away toward the western shore of the lake. Or else, I thought, he would prepare to plunge beneath the surface. But this persistence in holding our bow toward Buffalo was impossible to understand. At length the helmsman, whose eyes were watching the northeastern shore, made a sign to his companion. The latter, leaving the bow, went to the central hatchway, and descended into the engine-room. Almost immediately the captain came on deck, and joining the helmsman, spoke with him in a low voice. The latter, extending his hand toward Buffalo, pointed out two black spots, which showed five or six miles distant on the starboard side. The captain studied them attentively. Then, shrugging his shoulders, he seated himself at the stern without altering the course of the terror. A quarter of an hour later I could see plainly that there were two smoke-clouds at the point they had studied so carefully. Little by little the black spots beneath these became more defined. They were two long, low steamers, which, coming from the port of Buffalo, were approaching rapidly. Suddenly it struck me that these were the two torpedo-destroyers of which Mr. Ward had spoken, and which I had been told to summon in case of need. These destroyers were of the newest type, the swiftest boats yet constructed in the country. Driven by powerful engines of the latest make, they had covered almost thirty miles an hour. It is true the terror commanded an even greater speed, and always, if she were surrounded so that flight was impossible, she could submerge herself out of reach of all pursuit. In truth, the destroyers would have had to be submarines to attack the terror with any chance of success, and I know not if even in that case the contest would have been equal. Meanwhile, it seemed to me evident that the commanders of the two ships had been warned, perhaps by Mr. Wells, who, returning swiftly to Toledo, might have telegraphed to them the news of our defeat. It appeared, moreover, that they had seen the terror, for they were headed at full speed toward her. Yet our captain, seemingly giving them no thought whatever, continued his course toward the Niagara River. What would the torpedo-destroyers do? Presumably they would maneuver so as to seek to shut the terror within the narrowing end of the lake where the Niagara offered her no passage. Our captain now took the helm. One of the men was at the bow, the other in the engine-room. Would the order be given for me to go down into the cabin? It was not, to my extreme satisfaction. To speak frankly, no one paid any attention to me. 
It was as if I had not been on board. I watched, therefore, not without mixed emotions, the approach of the destroyers. Less than two miles distant now they separated in such a way as to hold the terror between their fires. As to the master of the world, his manner indicated only the most profound disdain. He seemed sure that these destroyers were powerless against him. With a touch to his machinery he could distance them, no matter what their speed. With a few turns of her engine the terror would dart beyond their cannon-shots. Or, in the depths of the lake, what projectiles could find the submarine? Five minutes later, scarcely a mile separated us from the two powerful fighters which pursued us. Our captain permitted them to approach still closer. Then he pressed upon a handle. The terror, doubling the action of her propellers, leaped across the surface of the lake. She played with the destroyers. Instead of turning in flight, she continued her forward course. Who knew if she would not even have the audacity to pass between her two enemies, to coax them after her, until the hour when, as night closed in, they would be forced to abandon the useless pursuit? The city of Buffalo was now in plain view on the border of the lake. I saw its huge buildings, its church towers, its grain elevators. Only four or five miles ahead Niagara River opened to the northward. Under these new conditions which way should I turn? When we passed in front of the destroyers, or perhaps between them, should I not throw myself into the waters? I was a good swimmer, and such a chance might never occur again. The captain could not stop to recapture me. By diving could I not easily escape, even from a bullet? I should surely be seen by one or other of the pursuers. Perhaps even their commanders had been warned of my presence on board the terror. Would not a boat be sent to rescue me? Evidently my chance of success would be even greater if the terror entered the narrow waters of Niagara River. At Navy Island I would be able to set foot on territory that I knew well. But to suppose that our captain would rush into this river where he might be swept over the great cataract, that seemed impossible. I resolved to await the destroyer's closest approach, and at the last moment I would decide. Yet my resolution to escape was but half-hearted. I could not resign myself thus to lose all chance of following up this mystery. My instincts as a police official revolted. I had but to reach out my hand in order to seize this man who had been outlawed. Should I let him escape me? No, I would not save myself. Yet on the other hand, what fate awaited me, and where would I be carried by the terror, if I remained on board? It was a quarter past six. The destroyers, quivering and trembling under the strain of their speed, gained on us perceptibly. They were now directly astern, leaving between them a distance of twelve or fifteen cable lengths. The terror, without increasing her speed, saw one of them approach on the port side, the other to starboard. I did not leave my place. The man at the bow was close by me, immovable at the helm, his eyes burning beneath his contracted brows. The captain waited. He meant perhaps to finish the chase by one last manoeuvre. Suddenly a puff of smoke rose from the destroyer on our left. A projectile, brushing the surface of the water, passed in front of the terror, and sped beyond the destroyer on our right. I glanced around anxiously. Standing by my side, the lookout seemed to await a sign from the captain. As for him, he did not even turn his head, and I shall never forget the expression of disdain imprinted on his visage. At this moment I was pushed suddenly toward the hatchway of my cabin, which was fastened above me. At the same instant the other hatchways were closed. The deck became watertight. I heard a single throb of the machinery, and the plunge was made. The submarine disappeared beneath the waters of the lake. Cannon-shot still boomed above us. Their heavy echo reached my ear. Then everything was peace. Only a faint light penetrated through the porthole into my cabin. The submarine, without the least rolling or pitching, sped silently through the deeps. 
I had seen with what rapidity, and also with what ease, the transformation of the terror had been made. No less easy and rapid, perhaps, would be her change to an automobile. And now, what would this master of the world do? Presumably he would change his course, unless, indeed, he preferred to speed to land, and there continue his route along the roads. It still seemed more probable, however, that he would turn back toward the west, and after distancing the destroyers, regain the Detroit River. Our submersion would probably only last long enough to escape out of cannon range, or until night forbade pursuit. Fate, however, had decreed a different ending to this exciting chase. Scarce ten minutes had passed when there seemed some confusion on board. I heard rapid words exchanged in the engine-room. The steadily moving machinery became noisy and irregular. At once I suspected that some accident compelled the submarine to reascend. I was not mistaken. In a moment the semi-obscurity of my cabin was pierced by sunshine. The terror had risen above water. I heard steps on the deck, and the hatchways were reopened, including mine. I sprang up the ladder. The captain had resumed his place at the helm, while the two men were busy below. I looked to see if the destroyers were still in view. Yes! Only a quarter of a mile away! The terror had already been seen, and the powerful vessels which enforced the mandates of our government were swinging into position to give chase. Once more the terror sped in the direction of Niagara River. I must confess I could make nothing of this maneuver. Plunging into a cul-de-sac, no longer able to seek the depths because of the accident, the terror might indeed temporarily distance her pursuers, but she must find her path barred by them when she attempted to return. Did she intend to land, and if so, could she hope to outrun the telegrams which would warn every police agency of her approach? We were now not half a mile ahead. The destroyers pursued us at top speed. Though being now directly behind, they were in poor position for using their guns. Our captain seemed content to keep this distance, though it would have been easy for him to increase it, and then at nightfall to dodge back behind the enemy. Already Buffalo had disappeared on our right, and a little after seven o'clock the opening of the Niagara River appeared ahead. If he entered there, knowing that he could not return, our captain must have lost his mind. And in truth, was he not insane, this man who proclaimed himself, who believed himself, master of the world? I watched him there, calm, impassive, not even turning his head to note the progress of the destroyers, and I wondered at him. This end of the lake was absolutely deserted. Freight steamers bound for the towns on the banks of the upper Niagara were not numerous as its navigation is dangerous. Not one was in sight. Not even a fishing-boat crossed the path of the terror. Even the two destroyers would soon be obliged to pause in their pursuit, if we continued our mad rush through these dangerous waters. I have said that the Niagara River flows between New York and Canada. Its width of about three-quarters of a mile narrows as it approaches the falls. Its length, from Lake Erie to Lake Ontario, is about fifteen leagues. It flows in a northerly direction, until it empties the waters of Lake Superior, Michigan, Huron, and Erie, into Ontario, the last lake of this mighty chain. The celebrated falls, which occur in the midst of this great river, have a height of over a hundred and fifty feet. They are called sometimes the Horseshoe Falls, because they curve inward like the iron shoe. The Indians have given them the name of Thunder of Waters, and in truth a mighty thunder roars from them without cessation, and with a tumult which is heard for several miles away. Between Lake Erie and the little city of Niagara Falls, two islands divide the current of the river, Navy Island, a league above the cataract, and Goat Island, which separates the American and the Canadian Falls. Indeed, on the lower point of this latter isle stood once that Terrapin Tower, 
so daringly built in the midst of the plunging waters on the very edge of the abyss. It has been destroyed, for the constant wearing away of the stone beneath the cataract makes the ledge move with the ages slowly up the river, and the tower has been drawn into the gulf. The town of Fort Erie stands on the Canadian shore at the entrance of the river. Two other towns are set along the banks above the falls, Schlosser on the right bank, and Chippewa on the left, located on either side of Navy Island. It is at this point that the current, bound within a narrower channel, begins to move at tremendous speed, to become two miles further on the celebrated cataract. The terror had already passed Fort Erie. The sun in the west touched the edge of the Canadian horizon, and the moon, faintly seen, rose above the mists of the south. Darkness would not envelop us for another hour. The destroyers, with huge clouds of smoke streaming from their funnels, followed us a mile behind. They sped between banks green with shade-trees, and dotted with cottages which lay among lovely gardens. Obviously the terror could no longer turn back. The destroyers shut her in completely. It is true their commanders did not know, as I did, that an accident to her machinery had forced her to the surface, and that it was impossible for her to escape them by another plunge. Nevertheless they continued to follow, and would assuredly maintain their pursuit to the very last. I marvelled at the intrepidity of their chase through these dangerous waters. I marvelled still more at the conduct of our captain. Within a half-hour now his course would be barred by the cataract. No matter how perfect his machine, it could not escape the power of the great falls. If the current once mastered our engines, we should inevitably disappear in the gulf nearly two hundred feet deep, which the waters have dug at the base of the falls. Perhaps, however, our captain had still power to turn to one of the shores and flee by the automobile routes. In the midst of this excitement, what action should I take personally? Should I attempt to gain the shores of Navy Island, if we indeed advance that far? If I did not seize this chance, after what I had learned of his secrets, never would the master of the world restore me to liberty. I suspected, however, that my flight was no longer possible. If I was not confined within my cabin, I no longer remained unwatched. While the captain retained his place at the helm, his assistant by my side never removed his eyes from me. At the first movement I should be seized and locked within my room. For the present my fate was evidently bound up with that of the terror. The distance which separated us from the two destroyers was now growing rapidly less. Soon they were but a few cable lengths away. Could the motor of the terror, since the accident, no longer hold its speeds? Yet the captain showed not the least anxiety, and made no effort to reach land. We could hear the hissing of the steam which escaped from the valves of the destroyers, to mingle with the streamers of black smoke but we heard even more plainly the roar of the cataract, now less than three miles away. The terror took the left branch of the river in passing Navy Island. At this point she was within easy reach of the shore, yet she shot ahead. Five minutes later we could see the first trees of Goat Island. The current became more and more irresistible. If the terror did not stop, the destroyers could not much longer follow her. If it pleased our accursed captain to plunge us into the vortex of the falls, surely they did not mean to follow into the abyss. Indeed, at this moment they signalled each other, and stopped the pursuit. They were scarce more than six hundred feet from the cataract. Then their thunders burst on the air, and several cannon-shots swept over the terror, without hitting its low-lying deck. The sun had set and through the twilight the moon's rays shone upon us from the south. The speed of our craft, doubled by the speed of the current, was prodigious. In another moment we should plunge into that black hollow which forms the very centre of the Canadian Falls. With an eye of horror I saw the shores of Goat Island flashed by, 
Then came the isles of the three sisters, drowned in the spray from the abyss. I sprang up. I started to throw myself into the water, in the desperate hope of gaining this last refuge. One of the men seized me from behind. Suddenly a sharp noise was heard from the mechanism which throbbed within our craft. The long gangways folded back on the sides of the machine, spread out like wings, and at the moment when the terror reached the very edge of the falls, she arose into space, escaping from the thundering cataract in the center of a lunar rainbow. End of chapter.